Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, I'm your host, Josh Janowiak, and joining me today, although I'm proud to say that that might be the last time that I intro myself like that, because we have a new full-time co-host. So in the future, I'll be saying, hello, we're your host. I'm Josh Janowiak. And I'm Megan Pear. Yay! Oh, it has such a nice ring to it. I like it. Yeah, I had to, yeah. I, I had to bend <laughs> her arm to commit to being on every podcast with me, but uh, we come from very different backgrounds of experiences, and I think that we complement each other well, and together we make one big super marketing human. Oh, wow. I, I like that description. Okay, right? we're, we're going to run with that. Kind of like a superhero. I guess so. Also want to give a uh, shout out. Thanks to Hungerford Technologies for putting us up in their awesome facility today. We got some uh, state-of-the-art WebEx gear that we're recording on, so want to thank them for uh, opening their doors to us. All right, well, let's not keep Melanie waiting in the wings. Our topic today, thinking like a journalist, five key elements to effective brand stories. With brands and marketers increasingly taking up the torch of storytelling, partnering with publishers on native ads, and leveraging content across their own properties, there are plenty of tips, tricks, and approaches to be learned from the world of journalism. Our guest today is Melanie Diesel, founder of StoryFuel, a consulting agency that helps empower brands to tell better stories. Melanie has firsthand experience in brand storytelling, having served as the first editor of branded content at the New York Times T Brand Studio. Here she wrote the sponsored content pieces that won the 2014 and 2015 Best Native Advertising Execution OMMA Award. Did I say that right or is it AMA? Either way. Either way. Does it work both ways? (laughs) Including the acclaimed Women Inmates piece for Netflix. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Thank Melanie. you guys for having me. I'm excited to, to join your your superhuman uh, collection today. <laughs> yeah, we're like a trio now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If we all put our rings together. So wait, what's the AMO award? I'm not familiar with that one. So it's, I believe it's Online Media and Marketing Association. Yes. I believe I'd have to I'd have to confirm that. But yeah, they they sort of honor. I mean, like like many of the wonderful associations uh, that we have, you know, honor some of the best work in the industry and. That for us was was really cool because it was actually, I believe, one of the first few years that they were offering an award for native advertising. They were really just starting to kind of acknowledge that as a distinct category, this phenomenon of a marketer, you know, in a, in a brand coming together with a publisher to create, you know, to co-create content that lives on the publisher's site. So uh, the fact that we were honored with that award so early on and then twice in a row was a, a really big win for, for the T-Brand Studio team at the Times. Well, congratulations. And by the way, that piece is phenomenal. Uh, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. But if anybody hasn't read the, the Woman Inmates piece for Netflix, you guys just did a phenomenal job with that. That was a really fun project to work on. Yeah. 
And that was great to see at our AMA luncheon as well, because that was part of the presentation where we really got to see a lot of the, the video and the visuals of what we'll be talking about uh, today. But Melanie, first, let's start a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your experience and how Story Fuel was born. Yeah, so Story Fuel uh, was born, let's see, about four years ago coming up. I can't believe we're we're almost four years old now, but um, my background is as a journalist. So I studied investigative reporting and arts and cultural criticism. And I always thought I would end up in sort of an editorial newsroom that I would be, you know, just telling stories for a newspaper or a website, you know, just kind of investigating my community, you know, things like that. Um, but I found pretty quickly that those first two teams that get cut when your newsroom goes digital or downsizes are investigative and arts, right? Those are generally the two that are expensive and, and don't always produce the right amount of revenue. Uh, and they often are, are cut. So I wasn't able to find a job in that world the way I wanted to. And so I was figuring out how do I put these skills that I've picked up as someone who you know, likes mining for stories as someone who is able to interview people and get them to speak openly in a way that they might not otherwise, as someone who is skilled at creating content on deadline and responding to a lot of edits, how can I take those skills and put them to use in any sort of meaningful way, perhaps outside the context of a journalistic environment? And that's how I ended up in content marketing, in brand storytelling, or as we talked about, native advertising. So uh, the fact that I was able to come in so early to HuffPost Partner Studio, which is the Huffington Post brand storytelling team, and kind of lay the groundwork for what brand storytelling would be on the Huffington Post platform. What would it be like to have a brand blogging on HuffPost or creating a slideshow or a listicle on HuffPost? Uh, it was really exciting for me because I was getting to put those same skills to use, but in a totally new context for me, the context of marketing. And then I was there for about a year. We were really, the team was growing. We were doing some really fun stuff. Uh, the freedom to work in the HuffPost brand was was exciting at, from a creative standpoint. Uh, but the New York Times came knocking and said that they were starting a similar team. And as someone who studied journalism, the New York Times is sort of- That's like your holy grail. <laughs> all right, that's, yeah, that's the place where you want to end up for mm -hmm. sure. So uh, I was really excited to go over there. They honored me with the, the job of being the very first editor of branded content at the New York Times, which was a, a big role. Nice, uh, you know, yeah. Similarly, we laid the groundwork for defining what branded content on the New York Times platform would look like so you know, that it had to be well sourced, that it had to include multimedia, that it needed to respect our readers' expectations of what New York Times quality content would be, even if it was being co-created or created by a brand. So that's where we did the work with Netflix that we were just talking about. Um, after I'd been there for about a year, I was looking for the next challenge. I spent some time at Time Incorporated. So I moved from digital to newspaper to now magazine, Time Inc. At the time, you know, pre-acquisition by Meredith, owned 35 magazines in the U.S. So you may not be familiar with Time Inc., those of you listening, but you you know the Time Inc. brand. So that would mm -hmm. be Time, Fortune, Money, Sports Illustrated, Entertainment Weekly. I mean, these are like really big, heavy hitter brands. And so getting to define what branded content looks like in those magazine and their you know corresponding digital environments was a lot of fun. But essentially, I discovered that I'm really excited by that early phase of helping people define what that storytelling should be, of helping them build a team. And then if I do my job well, I'm out of a job in about a year. And so having done that several times, that is where Story Fuel was born, was this idea that 
I could teach more people how to leverage these journalistic best practices to apply it to their marketing, their advertising, their storytelling, um, if I were out on my own. And so that's where StoryFuel was born so that we could continue to work with different brands and with some publishers who are kind of going through that learning process and saying, I know we need to be telling more brand stories. I know we need infrastructure of some kind. I know we need a strategy, but I'm just not sure where to start. That's where the Story Field team comes in. We do trainings and workshops. Um, we come in and get get to spend time with marketers as a, as a guest speaker, like we did with all of you a few months out for the luncheon, um, and just get to share what it is that we know and love about storytelling. That's awesome. And I love that your your company, Story Field, takes more of an approach of coming in and helping them build like a content team. So it's not just, hey, yeah. we're going to help you do the content. We're going to show you the process behind this. We're going to show you what a team looks like. So you kind of come ground up and do everything, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely an educational approach. And, you know, it's funny because I think that's confusing sometimes when we think of an agency um, or even like a firm, it, we sometimes struggle with what to call ourselves because we're not going to come in and write your blog posts. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to come film your videos. We're not going to optimize the captions on your Instagram. We're going to teach you how to do those things, right? We're going to help introduce you to tools. We're going to help you set up a team that meets those needs so that you feel equipped to do it going forward. You know, we are essentially the content team and strategy builders. Um, but I, I try very much to take the, the sort of teach a man to fish, you know, mm -hmm. approach to all of this. I would much rather get to spend time teaching people these things and watch them flourish, watch them get to take those, those skills and put them to use than to just parachute in and, and get locked into some long-term contract to that the day we leave, you're no better off than when we started. That for me, wouldn't feel good. You know, I love that. Yeah. And I think with, you know, there was a, a, a big push with a lot of marketing agencies and um, big organizations that were kind of helping some of the smaller marketers do their social media, write content for them. And I think that's that's a very tough thing to do if you're not living in that environment and you really know the language. I work at a, and do marketing for a, a very unique campground. We have our own language down there, our own set of things yeah. that we say and how we talk. And, and nobody outside of of us could could write content. I mean, you could spot it most likely a mile away. So I, I, I love that model of we'll teach you how to do this mm -hmm. all yourself so that you can actually be that consistent voice that you're trying to be for your target audience. That's great. Yeah. And I think in so many cases, you know, the thing that you're talking about, this idea that our our voice, our approach, our language, the way we create content is sort of internal and undocumented, I think there's a lot of companies, a lot of brands, a lot of entities that have that same thing, right? Because oftentimes content, especially in a small organization or a local organization is a team of one, right? Mm -hmm. So there's one person who they're not performing a voice. It's their voice, right? They're the person who runs the social and, and, you know, creates all the content um, or one person approving it. And so oftentimes part of the reason it's so hard to have outside help come in is because there isn't really a, a common language for talking about these things. There isn't a common approach to documenting it, to making it easier to share that language, to share that approach. And so oftentimes a lot of our work together with these different companies starts with figuring out the first thing we need to do is we need to collect as much documentation examples as possible and then we need to try to document and codify because, you know, God forbid you're, you're one team of one person, you know, has to go out on maternity leave or changes jobs or is ill for some period of time. 
someone else needs to be able to pick up that voice, mm-hmm. you know? And, and oftentimes we're so busy as a small team, a small content team, uh, you know, doing the work, we don't have time necessarily to document the work. And so sometimes that's often the first thing we're helping with is figuring out how do we, how do we create some systems for you that are going to give your, your poor overworked content team of one, uh, the freedom, to, the freedom to, to catch a cold, if need be, you know? <laughs> The freedom to take vacation, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah no, it's a, a very sustainable approach for a brand, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the anatomy of a good story. So some of the points that anybody can use to start doing their own blog, start doing their own inbound marketing articles, educational pieces, etc. So, I mean, I think one of the things that I always encourage people to do first um, is to really think about what your audience wants and needs, right? So for many of us from a marketing perspective, we're very tied up in our own messaging, our own goals. Um, and it's sometimes heartbreaking to think about the fact that our audience, our followers, our subscribers, whoever they may be, uh, they don't wake up in the morning and say, man, I can't wait to read a press release today. That's going to be so exciting. I can't wait till that rolls into my inbox. Uh, you know, they're not they're not as excited about the things that we need to tell them uh, as we are, of course, because it's what we do all day. And so sometimes there's a little bit of an adjustment that needs to be made between uh, the content we are creating for our audience and then the content that our audience actually wants, needs and engages with. There's often a gap there. And so that's sort of the first thing you probably want to examine. Um, and if you're in a position where you haven't started creating content yet, then you're in luck because you can do that examination first and start from you know, an informed place based on what your audience wants. So you can do that in a couple different ways. Uh, the, the easiest way is to just talk to your audience, right? So mm-hmm. uh, you might do that by, by talking to your customer service or your sales team and seeing what kind of questions your audience asks frequently. What do they have you know, confusion about? Uh, what might you be able to clarify for them? You could do that by looking at social media. What do people, you know, send you messages about or what kind of content that you share do they engage with most often? That's a good indication. You can do it through keyword research, right? So if you use a tool like Answer the Public, um, you may be able to do that and look into what kind of uh, keywords people are searching for. Um, and, and, you know, you can always go old school, do a survey, do a focus group, bring people in and just ask them about mm-hmm. their challenges, their questions, and what it is that you can help them solve in their day to day life. Yeah, I love that. Obviously, as a marketer, everything is about our customers and our audience. I just want to read this line because when you were here speaking, I wrote this in my notebook and I underlined mm-hmm. it a million times because I just thought it was fantastic. You say good journalists act in service of the audience, not in service of ourselves. Good yes. content puts the audience needs first. And I think you can even like translate that to marketing and, you know, good marketers act in service of the customers, right? Not necessarily of the brand. They kind of go together, but you need to think of your audience first. So love that, that you have that there. That's such a good yeah. kind of analogy. Absolutely. And it's funny because I think, you know, journalists, we have this way of talking about our profession very nobly. So, you know, if you, we think what we do is very noble and we're, you know, we're, we're saving the world um, as many professions do. So you'll hear phrases like we are the voice for the voiceless, right. Mm -hmm. Or the fourth estate or the watchdog, right. There is this tremendous sense of responsibility of by being here in this room or at this event or interviewing this high profile person, I am acting on behalf Mm -hmm. of my readers, my listeners, my viewers, And I've got to sort of convey their questions, their concerns, their worries, what they want to know. I'm I'm here as a stand in for them. So it is in many ways 
um, at least for those of us who are doing it ethically uh, and for the right reasons, you know, it is certainly, there's a certain amount of service and responsibility. And I think that some of the best marketing takes, as you said, a very similar approach of saying, you know, here, I'm here creating content or creating ads, you know, in some way in service of the audience Mm -hmm. to help them find solutions to help make their lives easier, whatever that may be. Yeah, you're not alone. I have a very good connection with my audience, too. I feel like, yes, that kind of I'm here in service of them as a marketer to make sure they get what they need. So, yeah, you're not alone in that. Well, and I think when you start, too, it's it's very tough because, you know, how do you how do you get out of the mindset of what you're enthralled in every day? So especially if you're a team of one and you're just trying to keep up with everything, mm-hmm. you're just thinking, I got to promote this. I got to promote this. I got to promote this. Um, I was going to ask you about tips. I think you already gave them though, ab- about mm-hmm. listening to, you know, customer service, what kind of questions are coming in? Cause obviously those are the questions people are having and those are the, the problems that you, you will be trying to solve. But um, is there any other way that you can try to get yourself out of that day-to-day mindset so you can put your, your, yourself into the shoes of your, your target audience? I think, you know, I mean, some of the tips that I shared, my favorite thing, honestly, is to, is to just try as best you can to, to genuinely be in those shoes. And maybe it takes a reminder of some kind. I mean, I remember it might be helpful to do what I've seen some clients do, which is hang up, you know, photos of your actual audience members, right? Or, you know, somewhere in the office to have those avatars visible so that you remember who it is that you're writing for or filming for or recording, whatever it may be, right? So having them visible as a constant reminder that, okay, this is not me, you know, VP of marketing creating this post. I'm creating this post with this specific person, you know, Jane Smith in mind, and this is what she looks like, and these are her challenges, and this is, you know, what she's dealing with today. Sometimes that visual reminder is enough to kind of get you out of that mindset. Um, but otherwise, I, I really do find that um, using keyword tools and, and doing some of those things we talked about, you know, going through social replies, things like that can give you a really good sense of where your audience's head is and what it is that they're concerned about. And sometimes knowing that information can actually inspire you to think in different ways or, or give you some exciting new idea for a project that you never would have thought of otherwise. So, you know, looking at that data, talking to your audience and, and just putting some sort of reminder in your creation space, wherever that may be, of who they are uh, can help jog your memory that it's not just about you today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we use personas in marketing, so yeah. very, very similar to, to what you're talking about here. But I love that you say, pull them out put them up on the wall, kind of have that visual reminder, because as Josh was mentioning, we can get lost in the day to day stuff, you know, we're just trying to get things out and meet our our deadlines. And so to have that visual reminder of the personas and have them present at all times is important. Yep. And I think when you do get time to do and be more proactive about doing surveys, they can be very helpful, especially for the people that really follow you and really are, are engaged with you. If there are quick surveys, I mean, you can get really valuable information from those. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be this like, you know, statistically significant research project that stands up to court examination. You know, you can put out a Twitter poll, you know, you can, there's easy ways. Hey, what, what do you guys want to learn more about? You know, what, what is the most confusing part of our product? Or, you know, what's something that you wish we would give you more information about? Just asking a question, putting out a simple poll, uh, you know, is, is an easy way to get 
quick feedback, you know, and get some, some insight, you know, you don't have to make it a huge project, especially again, if you're like a marketing team of one or two, the idea of now taking on focus groups or mm-hmm. some big research project can, can be very overwhelming. So look for, you know, take a lesson from the startup world in this case and look for like a minimum viable product. What's the, what's the easiest, quickest, most effective way we can get some of that feedback from our audience. Yeah, let's talk about truth. You had that as an acronym that was kind of a, a great outline for what we're talking about here and how you can structure stories. So what does the T stand for? <laughs> so yeah, truth is our acronym for sort of the five key journalistic elements that you can take into your storytelling. And so T, that first one is really about teaching. And I think we've hit on this just a little bit as we're talking about what our audience needs to know. Um, But really in so many cases, journalists, as I said, what we're trying to do is collect information on behalf of our audience because they weren't at the debate or they didn't do the interview or they didn't witness this event. We're trying to collect that information repackage it in a way that makes it very easy for our audience to understand, supplement it with other information and pass it along so that they can feel informed. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in many cases, some of the best marketing does the same thing. There are things that our audience has questions about. There are things that our audience wants to know. There are things they struggle to achieve. There are processes they need to complete. And insofar as we can create content that's going to help them do all of those things, we can be the people they come to for solutions. And so if they see us as someone, oh, this is someone who helped me stop that horrible, annoying noise that my dishwasher is making by making that really helpful video on how to set that part just right. Uh, Then when it comes time for a major dishwasher purchase, for example, we know that you're someone we can trust. You know your stuff and they can come back to you for not just some helpful information, but for that next part of your whole marketing funnel. So the idea of tea as your first reminder is, What can I teach my audience? What can I do to teach the audience something that they don't necessarily know or that might make their lives easier? Yeah, well, it goes back to providing that value, right? And I think it's important, too, from a brand perspective, this kind of teach methodology is great because it allows you to really maximize your production with content because you're producing more evergreen content with this method, right? So you're not, you can have evergreen content that you can uh, distribute in different channels and repurpose. And uh, so it's a little bit more practical for a brand too. Definitely. What is evergreen content? I was going to say, you pulled that one out. That, that's a journalism term, right? It is. So. I, know, I know what it is. I took notes, but I gotta, I've got to ask for those listening to the podcast. I started out in a journalism degree, so yes, 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 yes. But we go have ahead. to make it useful, right? This is how, this is how we can justify it. <laughs> yes. uh, but yeah, no, evergreen content, like an evergreen tree, mm-hmm. is uh, stuff that has a much longer shelf life. And we're always looking for that from a marketing perspective, stuff that we know is going to be useful for a long time. So uh, evergreen content is something that you make today that will still be as useful a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, and maybe more. So for example, a, you know, if you build a set of instructions for how to fix a particular issue that comes up with a product often, or how to update it, how to change out a specific part, something, you know, your audience has to do, I might need to be doing that today. Uh, but you might need to do it next week and other customers may need to do it on random days scattered throughout the next three years. So that single piece of content we created has sort of evergreen value for our audience and that different people will find it useful at different points and investing in creating it once kind of continues to give us ROI for the long haul. So this kind of educational content does really tend to be evergreen and and that gives you more bang for your buck, which Mm -hmm. I think we're all sort of in search of, right? Yep. 
And <laughs> what's what's the general rule for recycling that content? If it is evergreen and it can be used on an annual basis, can you just repost it or would you want to update it and tweak it a little bit? Yeah, I think anytime that something needs to be updated, it should be, right? So if anything has changed, if model numbers have changed, if you want to add in some fresh photography that, you know, more accurately represents something, there's no reason not to update that content if you can. Um, but I think as a general rule, a lot of this content tends to be found by your audience when they're seeking it out. So I think a lot of this educational content, um, while you certainly can reshare it at some sort of uh, you know, recurring cadence of some kind, it's often very search driven in that when I need to switch out a part or update something or change the cover of something, I'm going to be looking for how to do that. I'll come upon this educational content that's right for me. And then I'll find the solution that I'm looking for in that moment. Um, but the other thing that's really great about this content is your sales, marketing, customer service, and social teams can use this type of content as means of replying to people who have these common questions. So, you know, for your poor social person who has probably gets the question about the noisy dishwasher, you know, once every, every two weeks or something, now they've got an awesome video they can reply with and say, hey, no problem. This is how you can fix that. Should take you about five minutes. Here's the instructions. Instead of having to explain it or refer them to some other means of customer service. So that content can sort of shorten the time span in being able to, to you know, solve the questions that come up in the future. Mm -hmm. And the teach isn't just how-to articles or to how to solve a, a particular problem. Um, you mentioned it could be stuff as like history of your organization or maybe mm -hmm. a behind-the-scenes tour of an event or a production line or something like that. So can you give us like an example of that, what that might look like? Yeah, exactly. So I think processes are the things we think of teaching most, and they're often the easiest for us to make. Um, but again, yeah, there's plenty we can teach our audience. We can teach them about the people in our organization. So that's one way to do it, right? So let's talk about our founder's origin story, or who's the engineer who came up with this particular product? Who's the designer that helps make our brand come to life? Um, all these things that, that we can share with our audience as a way of teaching them more about us that they may not know otherwise. Uh, the behind the scenes stuff, I think, is a lot of fun because we see the day-to-day -day of our uh, of our business, of our industry, of our product, and we don't find it incredibly fascinating because it's our day-to-day, -day. but our audience doesn't know how those things work. Mm -hmm. Our audience doesn't know how things get made or how, what the processes that they go through. So being able to take them behind the scenes, it's, it's kind of capturing that moment uh, that we've all had, or if you have young kids, this happens quite often, you pass by the pizza shop or the pretzel place and someone is like manipulating the dough, right? They're tossing it in the air yeah. and it's mesmerizing. And the pizza guy certainly doesn't think he's doing anything special. He does that a hundred times a day more, right? Um, but as someone who can't achieve that, to just watch it happen and marvel at that everyday task that is from a world other than mine, you know, sometimes our audience has that same experience of watching us, uh, you know, see how the lines get painted on the road if you're running, you know, marketing for the local construction company, right? Like that's something I have no idea how that happens. I'd be interested to watch and see, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so just these little, these little things that we do, taking the audience behind the scenes, letting them see something they may not otherwise get to see uh, can be really enlightening and exciting for them. Yeah, that how, what is it? How is this made show? Oh, how love it's made. How, how it's made, yes. Well, and I just, yeah. I love watching the, the extra features at the end of movies where they show you, exactly. you know, all of the things that they ran into when filming this particular scene. 
Did you know that the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were mixed, uh, what, dolphin and elephant sounds to get the sounds that the velociraptors make? No. See, I have no. a whole new appreciation. I love right? But that's good content. That's, yeah, you that's interesting. But no, like we, you go through and you watch that stuff and it's amazing how they show you how, how they do all of the animatronics and the problems that they had because of the hot weather. And it's it just gives you a whole new perspective on the show. So I think that's a great example if you can... Well, unlock that and you're in your everyday, you know, work for people. I think that's an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, and the sound mixer who spent all day mixing dolphins and elephants together probably doesn't think that he had a super fascinating day at the office, but we want to know, right? I didn't do that. Tell me more. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. All right. Let's talk about the R. So the R in our truth acronym is for reputable sources. And what I mean by this is Oftentimes as brands, our instinct is to rely on the things that are familiar to us or perhaps the things that our legal team has already given us clearance to do and to only quote ourselves, to only use our own data, to only feature our employees. And what that ends up doing for our audience is giving them a a very because I said so kind Mm -hmm. of feeling from us where they don't know if they can trust us because we're the only ones saying all these wonderful things about ourselves. Uh, We're the only people that we're quoting. And so you know, any journalist who's worth their salt knows that part of the the value of what you create is being able to go and find sources, find experts and bring them into your stories so that you don't actually have to say any of those things. In fact, as a journalist, you shouldn't be saying any of those things. You should be finding the experts and letting them say it for you. So taking a little bit of that approach and sprinkling it onto the content that you create as a marketer can help bring some of that reputation building and that credibility into the content finding local sources, finding experts, influencers, professors, uh, quoting studies, you know, looking for ways you can validate the things you want to say about your product, your industry, you know, your impact on your clients. Even something as simple as a testimonial is really the most basic form of this, right? Mm -hmm. Why tell your audience we are great and everyone loves our product when you can get your customers to say that about you instead? It just adds a little bit more uh, credibility to the things that we say. It's that third party validation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I love that you mentioned academic sources. Uh, This doesn't even like come to top of mind. And I wish it did because I'm like, that's such a great partnership. I mean, there's so many phenomenal academics out there who could possibly work with you on running a study or maybe they already have something published that you could, uh, you know, cite in whatever content you're developing. Academic sources are really wonderful because, and I think we, we may have talked about this when I visited you all for the luncheon too, you know, one of the concerns with bringing in sort outside sources, and I get this, right, is brand safety. We're allowing this person who's not our employee to kind of talk on our behalf. And that can be scary. I totally understand that. Um, but as a general rule, uh, professors are not the rowdiest bunch who tend to get us into legal trouble, right? They're a lot less risky than whatever celebrity or athlete or whoever else we may have, you know, enabled uh, to speak on our behalf, the influencers we have speaking on our behalf, right? Um, I don't generally see professors uh, getting brands into big trouble. So, you know, the other thing that's wonderful about them, and, and I, I make this joke often, and I've worked as a professor, I know this, we, we pick the least paying version of whatever our profession is solely because we like to teach others about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one knows teaching to be a, a high paid profession full of divas uh, who are, you know, super demanding. So finding these sources who are 
A, very intelligent, B, incredibly informed and passionate about what they do, and C, mission-driven to share that information with others, makes them almost a textbook source for Mm -hmm. you to bring into your content, people who can come in, add credibility, weigh in on the things that you're exploring, and bring added credibility to whatever it is that you're trying to create. Absolutely. What about influencers? Because this is a hot topic right now, and I don't want to make this all about influencer marketing, but... um, (laughs) What should a brand kind of know if they're thinking about going this route with their their content? Yeah, you know, um, my expertise is not particularly influencers in and of itself, right? So I, I tend to avoid giving too much prescriptive advice here. But as a general rule, if someone is being hired for their influence, it means that they understand their value, right? They know that they are someone who should be paid and compensated for their ability to influence others. So if you're going to be working with influencers, you need to be prepared that you're probably going to have to pay for that, right? So even if you're just maybe asking them for a quote for an article, they may expect to be compensated for that. Mm-hmm. Even if you're just asking them to uh, you know, send you a recommendation that you might include in a roundup, they might expect to be compensated for that. And you can't blame them. That's truly the value that they bring. Um, I think by contrast, academic sources where you say, hey, can you clarify this complex issue for us to make sure that we're representing it to our audience correctly, given your expertise, they're less likely to expect that to be a paid exchange of information because they're, again, mission driven to be teaching others. So that's one distinction. Um, And I think there's there's always the brand safety issue that, Mm -hmm. you know, that we sort of hit on before. Um, We see this happen all the time where a celebrity has some sort of unfortunate fall from grace, whether it's because of a crime or some sort of scandal, Uh, even the most wholesome of uh, of celebrities, you know, get mixed up in, in trouble sometimes. And there is always a risk if you're employing that person to speak on your behalf, that whatever the trouble they may get mixed up in is going to reflect on you, your brand, uh, and have an impact on the way you communicate with your customers. So just something to be aware of, you know, not something to perhaps keep you from doing it, but just something to have in your mind and have some sort of crisis preparedness plan uh, in the event that that happens. Sure. How much information is is needed from them to just insert one or two quotes from a credible source, an academic or an influencer? Is that enough or there should be more or how how do you balance or how do you work that into your story? Yeah, I think the degree to which you want to involve experts and sources for this to check this box on the R, right, on the reputable sources, is going to depend on the content itself. So, for example, let's say that you and your company have done some sort of study and, you know, it's your quarterly report or you're putting out a white paper. Maybe if that's a substantial piece of content, if it's a 10 page report or a 25 page report then simply having one quote might not even stand out. No one may even notice that, right? So proportionally, you may want to talk to several experts or have them weigh in on different parts of the report. Say, hey, this is what we found here. Does this ring true with your experience? And get them to react to it a little bit, include that reaction. Uh, We were sort of surprised to find this finding on page 13. Uh, Does that surprise you? If not, why? You know, get just get their reaction to things. They're generally happy to, to share their feedback in response to things and then include some of that reaction. Whereas if you're creating just a quick blog post, you know, five things you need to know uh, if you're going to buy your first home, then maybe, you know, talking to a mortgage broker or a real estate agent, uh, you know, maybe you do only need one quote from them. Or maybe you talk to five different experts and they each give you one sentence. And that might be just enough to make sure that on that one page, it's not all coming from you. It's not all because you said so. Just having one other voice uh, is good. But 
I remember when I was in journalism school, the rule was always three sources. You should always try to have three sources, uh, human or otherwise. So data can count as a source, you know, something you can trust can count as a source. But uh, having three sources was a way to make sure that you're not quoting the only person saying something. Uh, the idea was that you can always find someone, one person to have any view yeah, uh, right. that doesn't make it valid, right? Mm -hmm. So having three sources is kind of a way to check yourself and make sure that there's there's at least some level of agreement on that particular sentiment or topic. Sure. And next up, unique. I think that's something that we as marketers uh, should all resonate pretty highly with us. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So this is really the differentiation conversation. And this one is sometimes the hardest. I think this is the one where I maybe hurt people's feelings the most. And I don't mean to, I don't want to. Um, but this is what, what we were saying before, right? Our audience doesn't wake up excited to see another press release, right? Um, or the fact that we are launching a product or have a new, a new flavor available, a new color available in our product or opening a new unit somewhere, a new location that may not even begin to register on things that our audience cares about. And yet our mission is often to share that kind of information. So in this particular area, in the you, what you're going to be asking yourself is how can I find a unique way to approach the story? What's something I can do to make sure that I'm saying something that my audience cares about, right? So, you know, there's a couple ways you can do this. You know, I, I've given these examples before and I, I talked about it at the luncheon as well. Anytime there's a first or only, right? So if the, you're the first, it's the first of its kind. It's the, you're the only company doing this, the only product that offers this feature. That is unique in and of itself. So focusing on that, telling the story through that lens helps your audience understand why this is worth their time to, to learn more about. Um, if you're not the first or only, then other superlatives will do as well. So biggest, longest, oldest, greenest, uh, you know, fanciest, I don't know, whatever, whatever superlatives you've got, look for some superlative that you can apply to this particular product announcement situation uh, and try to use that lens of that superlative. Because again, it's just that our, our audience has so many things that are competing for their attention, right? And I know that this is kind of a trite example, but we're not just competing with other blog posts. We're competing with, you know, think about it. The first thing we all did when we sat down for this very conversation was we had to shut off all the notifications from <laughs> everywhere, right? Yeah. Because even in a closed room, having a conversation, the number of things competing for our attention, email, social mm -hmm. media, pop-ups on your computer, I mean, our audience is in that same boat. And so for us to stand out, we do need to find the first or only, you know, find those superlatives, try to find that unique angle to help your audience see why is this something worthy of, of breaking through that, that no, uh, no notification uh, barrier they may have set or breaking through their attention being worthy of their time. Mm -hmm. Well, and not just unique to, um, you mentioned this a little bit, but truly customer centric, right? So I think that's the, like you said, one of the hardest things to do is to kind of get out of the brand mindset and we, 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 and really focus on the customer and writing to them and their needs. Yeah. What are they going to find interesting? Because that is that is an important distinction, right? The fact that this is the first time we've released a product in February, like that's that's not going to cut it. How exciting. You know, that's important for us, right. but again, not for the audience. Right. So, um, you know, finding those those first or only elements or, or those superlatives that are relevant to your audience. That's a really good distinction to make. Mm hmm. Well, and that all goes into play with the recent podcast that we had with Stan Phelps about being flossome and flaunting your uniqueness and your mm -hmm. weaknesses, you know, finding that niche. And, you know, I, 
I, I read and re-listen to Seth Godin audiobooks and just finished listening to Purple Cow again mm. and just, you know, mm-hmm. having him talk about finding that small niche, like everybody does, everybody's going to do something surprisingly well. And all of the things that you can do are already taken by somebody, but you can laser focus on that certain group and do something, you know, very unique. So find that angle and write it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, so the key becomes uh, not just asking that at a macro level, like as a brand, why are we special or as a product, why are we special? But like every time I'm putting out a blog post or we're, we're making a video, we're, we're doing a podcast, uh, you know, what is special about this? Why should our audience care about this particular thing? Why are we making this? And why is it worth reading, listening to whatever, you know, looking for that unique element each and every time. It also keeps you, especially if you're a limited resource team from getting stuck in the hamster wheel of Mm -hmm. why am I posting? Because it's Friday, not because I have anything to say, but because I always post on Friday and thusly I need something to post. So, you know, by asking that question is, you know, what's special about this? What's unique about this post, this blog, this article, article, this video, you're making sure that you're focusing your attention on those things that are actually going to break through the noise. And it's not necessarily just uh, the content you you mentioned here. It can be the format um, and how you're telling the story. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I've pointed out before is, you know, occasionally we have to say things that have been said before. It's an unavoidable reality, right? We have annual events or, you know, recurring reminders. Uh, not everything we do has can have a unique perspective or an earth shattering new lens to look at through. So one of the ways you can mix things up is by actually presenting that information in a new format. So maybe we always do our annual or quarterly report. For example, it's always a PDF. And you think, well, what would happen if we did our quarterly report as a podcast update, as an audio update? Well, what if we did our quarterly report through video? And it was sort of a whiteboard animation video giving all the stats from the previous quarter. Or, okay, what if we did it as a webinar and we had we just had people tune in live and listen to us, you know, present the report. So by asking yourself if there's a unique way you can present what is otherwise feels like very similar uh, or non-unique information, um, that can sometimes allow you to stand out in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think right now, one of the big trends uh, that I see a lot, and and maybe I'm wrong, but is immersive uh, storytelling kind of coming out, um, especially with like virtual reality and things like that. But you don't necessarily have to go to that level. Because a lot of smaller sure. to mid-sized brands may not be able to go to that level, but you can do something different like a video or an infographic or just some different, right. uh, you know, format to get that message out. Yeah. Wait, what's this immersive video or immersive? Immersive storytelling? Immersive Melanie, storytelling. you want to tell us about immersive yeah. storytelling? Tantalizing. Yeah, I mean, um, immersive storytelling, it's, it's funny because I think it's one of... It, its meaning has changed mm-hmm. over the last few years as new technology has come to us. Like our definition of what counts as immersive has shifted. Um, you know, there was a time where video was the most immersive we could sure. get. And now we've got things like augmented reality, you know, where things are showing up on your screen. Um, and we've got virtual reality, of course. I think one of the challenges with something like immersive storytelling is making sure that we're not getting distracted by a shiny new object. And again, putting our audience first. So, um, I had a lot of brands in the last year or two say, we need to do something in virtual reality. And the first thing I ask 
of the people in this room on this very call who want to invest in virtual reality, how many of you have a headset and would be capable of viewing mm-hmm. it? <laughs> and it's almost always zero. Yeah. And that speaks to our audience as well, right? So if we're going to put all this time and effort into this amazing, never been done before, super epic, immersive experience that three people can view, <laughs> that's probably that's a problem, practice. right? Yeah. So, you know, immersive is wonderful, but we want immersive, again, coming back in a way that's useful to our audience audience, right? Yeah. Or even like using uh, the immersive storytelling, like with a trade show, like that can be an immersive storytelling experience with your trade show booth. And it doesn't have to involve virtual reality or augmented reality or all these, you know, new tech, but it's, it's how you kind of build that experience Experience. with the story, which I think is, is probably the more, more key element is it's the experience plus the story. Is that, is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, yeah. It's this idea of how can we more deeply engage the audience mm-hmm. in this story or experience, right? So, you know, the, obviously the tech the tech way to do it is put on the headset and, <laughs> and feel like you're actually there in the jungle or at the top of the mountain or whatever it may be. Um, but sometimes it's as simple as adding an activity or an element of engagement. So people are inputting information and getting a custom output with some sort of quiz or tool that may be a more immersive way of telling that story because we're getting them to engage, right? Mm -hmm. Or making a map or an infographic that moves, that can be clicked, that has hover states or can be zoomed into. Now we get people moving and actually engaging with that content as opposed to just sort of looking at it passively, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways you can bring small moments of that engagement into all kinds of content. Uh, And it doesn't always have to involve like, you know, giant immersive helmets. Sure. (laughs) Well, like the, like the, what is it called? The Google stamp on the, the search when you go to the Google page, sometimes yeah. there are little interactive things that they do, little games. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. that's a perfect example, right? The little Google doodle of the day. Google doodle. Right? That's you know, what like, it is. You got to look at this page anyway. We might as well put something fun here and get you right. to click around a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's fun. There's, stuff. there's probably little moments like that. And this this veers a little away from content and more toward probably experience. But I think it's still relevant. There are probably touch points like that, countless touch points like that in your customer's experience, whether it's the unsubscribe page mm-hmm. or, you know, the confirmation email, you know, all those little things you can bring in unexpected elements of activity of, you know, showing your brand of using that voice of doing something unexpected uh, to just delight them a little bit. Mm hmm. Awesome. Let's talk about tension. Tension is key. So tension is sort of sort of an extension of uh, the uniqueness element here. So the thing about tension is asking the question, why does our audience care? Right. So tension is key. It's why does our audience care? And I, I, I think I may have shared this story, but I, I had an editor who would always ask this question. If you couldn't answer this question about whatever story you wanted to write, it was never showing up anywhere. It would never see the light of day. Why does our audience care? And if they don't, why should they? Right. So why does our audience care about this? And I think here again, this is for us as marketers. We're like, well, because it's great, because we won an award because it's new, like, and that's, it's not quite enough for our audience sometimes. This is where we often find ourselves talking about risks, benefits, features, right? The things that that actually impact them on a day-to-day. And so being able to try to answer those questions of why should our audience care, uh, I think it, it really allows you to tap into and add some tension to a story that might otherwise feel very plain, very undifferentiated, and very irrelevant to your audience. Mm-hmm. That's a great best practice. Just ask that question in every piece that you develop. What are some examples of uh, how you could work tension into an article or, or some that you've done? 
Yeah. Well, one, one of my favorite things to do, and we touched on this a little bit in the, in the very beginning when we were talking about teaching our audience is one way you can know that your audience cares about something is if they're asking a question, right? As a general rule, when one asks a question, it's because they want to know the answer, right? I mean, sometimes we have sarcastic questions, like there's definitely some exceptions here, but for the most part, you ask a question because you want to know the answer. And so if we can create content that is answering our audience's questions, then we know that they are in some way invested in the outcome of the content we create, that we're creating something that they do care about because it's based on a question that they ask. So finding those questions is a really good way to do it. Um, one of my other favorite ways to do it is to try to identify debates of some kind. Um, so this doesn't have to be like a big, serious political debate. It doesn't have to be something risky, something your legal team's going to get heartburn about. But there are almost always things that our audience does that happen in our industry, that happen with regards to our product, that people have one or the other side that they fall on, right? So a very simple example is when it comes to coffee, if you are a coffee drinker, maybe there's coffee versus tea, right? So some people are coffee drinkers, some people are tea drinkers. But if you're a coffee drinker, you might be the kind of person who has like a fancy pour over French press, you know, uh, wonder maybe an immersive experience <laughs> with your coffee, right? Oh, yes. yes. Or That's you may me. be a drop a K cup or a pouch into a machine and press a button kind of coffee person. Yeah. And, and that's something that you're probably just one or the other. So understanding if I'm a coffee company and I'm marketing to my audience, I have to know that there's this debate, that there are two sides, that my audience falls into these categories and that their reaction to content, their questions, the things they care about may be different by tapping into that passion or, you know, anti-passion of, of disliking the other side, perhaps uh, we can kind of tap into that passion and get them to care about the content we're creating. So, you know, looking for those debates, those sides, those those A versus B situations in your industry or your product or anywhere within your audience and creating content that taps into both sides uh, is a way is a way to, to tap into some of that passion and create some of that tension. So Megan, how do you brew your coffee? <laughs> I go to the uh my local barista who brews it for me. You know, I gotta, go. I gotta say, I went French press for a long time, but then it got really bitter. And then when the pour over became more prolific, I switched to that. And it's just, you get such a better taste out of the pour over. Melanie, what do you think? Have you, have you tried the AeroPress? No, I've seen those. Oh yeah. That's a good one too. Futuristic looking. <laughs> AeroPress. He's, he's going for the more immersive experience. He is, yeah. 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 I'm having the immersive experience in the coffee house. Okay. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So just different immersion. Just a different experience. Right. But you can see people are very passionate about, you know, one way or another. It could spark exactly. a little spark yeah, a little well, coffee talk. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and sometimes people will say, like, well, aren't we gonna alienate our audience then? Right? Like if I if I create content about the pour over or the French press or how to do this in an industrial, you know, espresso machine as a barista, aren't we gonna alienate our audience? And I think that's something we think about so much more because we see everything that we create. Mm -hmm. Our audience does not. They don't see every post, every blog, every video. It's very rare that that would happen. And so as long as you're acknowledging and you're not necessarily taking a side and demonizing one side of this debate or the other to create content that says, here's how to brew our beans so that it's perfect for your French press. Mm. Here's how to brew our beans so that it's perfect for pour over. Here's how to, you know, grind the beans so that it works for your industrial machine in your coffee shop. You're only going to read the one that's relevant and appeals mm -hmm. to you, but you've managed to tap into passion and make people feel like they have something that, that is specifically for them and that they should care about. 
or for Megan, here's how you should have Starbucks brew your coffee for you so you get the maximum <laughs> enjoyment. We're, we're probably marketing to her barista in that instance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So the H, the last one, human connection. This is the easiest one, right? It's just people relate to people. So key. And I think it's so easy for us to forget. Again, marketing, we, we pull in quotes, we've got stats, we've got data, we've got product photos. And I think it's very easy to forget that we, we like faces and we like voices, right? We like to see other humans. And when we see other humans, we see ourselves in the content, right? So you may see someone who looks like you or who has a similar experience to you, who runs a company similar to yours, who has the same challenges that you have. And in that, we're able to create a connection and that helps with all the other things that we just talked about before. You know, if someone like me or in some way like me has had a positive experience with you or has had some sort of change created because of their work with you and I hear that and I see that, well, I'm more likely to buy in now because they helped that person who's just like me. They helped that person who had the same challenge as me. And so when we're bringing in our reputable sources, like we talked about earlier, we're creating more of those opportunities for our audience to find someone who appeals to them, who they can relate to, who they see themselves in in some way. Same thing when we bring in our customers for testimonials, right? They're hearing someone with similar struggles, like, oh, I get that. I feel that. I've been in that position. And so I think asking yourself at every opportunity, is there a way to bring more faces or more voices into this piece is a really good way to make sure you're establishing that human connection uh, and not just being like a robot brand, which we can we can veer into that category sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the key to storytelling is that kind of emotional connection. And this is a great way to do that. Um, one of my favorite books uh, is The Storytelling Edge. And uh, mm -hmm. just kind of they talk a lot about, you know, that emotion and uh, really tapping into kind of the neuroscience of it and, and, you know, individuals experience that emotion. And so really focusing on the human connection can help drive that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is part of the reason why testimonials exist in the first place is we sort of acknowledge this on some level, right, is that seeing another customer who, who can make a claim, we know that's gonna resonate with people more deeply than just making that claim ourselves. And so kind of challenging ourselves, again, no matter what we're doing, if we're making a video or a press release, you know, just asking how can we find more faces and bring in more voices to this piece. Uh, the more we do that, the more we're gonna create a much deeper connection with the audience. Well, and let's talk a little bit about your award-winning article for Orange is the New Black, because yeah. you you kind of took the elements of everything that we just discussed, rolled them all into that story, and the visual of the photos and everything that you put in there, mm -hmm. I mean, it really hit home much more than just a text-based article that ran through a bunch of stats and yeah. just a bunch of, of information without any kind of other you know, unique way of showing graphical information or, you know, yeah. uh, what, what these women were going through. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How did you piece that all together? So the, the piece that we're talking about here for anyone who hasn't read it, just for some, some background context, uh, was created for Orange is the New Black, which is, you know, Netflix's show about women in prison. Uh, they've just had their final season come out, you know, this year, but at the time this was the second season. So they were still looking to reach new audience, still trying to, you know, weren't yet concerned with loyalty, more focused on helping people see this is still a show you might want to engage with. Uh, and the challenge was at the time I was working at the New York Times, 
their challenge to us, their brand team challenge to us was how do we convince your audience that this is a show they may be interested in, that this is about things that they care about? You know, how do how do we get them on board? How do we show them instead of tell them that they should watch the show? So our solution was the piece that we're talking about here uh, called Women Inmates, Why the Male Model Doesn't Work. Uh, and the piece that we created was essentially an investigative written article uh, about what it's really like to be a woman in the American prison system. So we didn't talk to the actresses or characters. It was about real inmates inside American prisons. Um, so it was a long form piece. It was about 2000, you know, 1500, 2000 words um, talking to these women, talking to people who work in the prisons to you know, prison reform workers, psychologists, sociologists, all those reputable experts, those reputable sources who could really give us some context for what the prison experience is like as a woman and why that's unique. Um, we also use a lot of different formats in this piece. This is one of the first times we had created brand content that was truly multimedia. So the piece had, like I said, it was, you know, 2000 words or so, but it also had a three-part mini documentary. There was photo slideshows in there. There were audio clips. So you could listen to the women telling their stories in their own voices. There were infographics. So we really did, you know, so some animated illustrations were built in as well. So we really tried to bring in as many unique visual elements as possible to kind of make it so that it appealed to different people that they could explore the content in different ways, you know, give it a little bit of that immersive, uh, some immersive sprinkles like we were just talking about earlier. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of built intention in a piece like this just built in because we're talking about issues of morality, of right and wrong, of crime. Um, but a big through line of this piece was actually about the families of these women and how their families were impacted, you know, them having been separated in some cases permanently from their children, you know, without much warning uh, and the trauma that that caused many of them. So, you know, there was some sort of tension elements built into that. Um, and, and this piece was, was really all about the women. It was about seeing their faces, hearing their voices, you know, and the, the phrase I often talk about is when you read a piece like this and you hear about children being separated from their mother, um, everyone who reads it either is or has a mother. And so there's an ability to see yourself somewhere in that story to understand what it might feel like to either lose, you know, a connection with your own children or, you know, to, to have been separated from your own mother at a young age, that suddenly you're able to, to understand the impact of that story in a different way, because it's not just a chart or a statistic, it's a story that you can in some way place yourself in through that human connection. And so that's really part of why this piece seemed to resonate so deeply with so many people. You know, it was, uh, it got an immense amount of traffic, much more than we bargained for. Um, it was shared really widely. You know, people were, were eager to share it. Um, it organically appeared in the sort of top 10 most emailed articles list that appears on the homepage of the New York Times. So that was wonderful for us from a marketing standpoint, because that's not real estate you can buy. We really had to earn our way there, um, you know, and be be worthy of our audience's time and attention. Um and we, we also got a tremendous amount of press, which is always wonderful, right? So uh, it was covered in Ad Age and Digiday and, con you know, Contently and all, all the sort of industry publications that we look to for insights on marketing and brand storytelling. And so that was a big honor for us as well. Um, I think for me personally, it was it was a really interesting experience because I did get to use my background as an investigative reporter. I, it was 
rewarding for me personally, just to get to, I wrote that story myself, you know, reported it myself. I did about 40 hours of reporting on that individual piece. Uh, so that was wonderful. But it was also acknowledged by some of the really well-respected journalists in the New York Times newsroom, you know, who were saying that the piece was well-reported and well-sourced and that uh, it lived up to that New York Times brand, which for us, knowing that we're creating a piece of marketing content and having these well-respected journalists in the newsroom say, this lives up to the New York Times brand, this is New York Times quality, was probably the, the, the biggest compliment we could have received uh, as creators and as strategists. So uh, it did certainly set the bar high, though, for everything we did after that time. I'm sure, right? <laughs> so when we start taking these things that we're learning from you today, should we shoot for that level of uh, success with all of our stories? I think if you shoot for that level of success with all of your stories, you will be forever disappointed as, <laughs> as I have been myself. You know, don't, uh, don't aim, aim that high. Um, but, you know, I think the much more approachable way to do this, you know, that piece serves as, you know, that's, that's my free bird. That was like our one big piece that everyone wants to hear about for years on end. Right. Um, but there are many small victories you can take along the way. So the things we talked about here, Every piece doesn't need to have, you know, a half million dollar budget and use every possible format and go all in on the immersion like we talked about earlier. It could be as simple as remembering these five things as a checklist and asking yourself during strategic content conversations uh, if you're if you're accounting for them. So asking, is there a way we can teach our audience about this topic? Should we bring in more reputable sources to this individual piece? Have we found a unique angle, you know, through which we can tell this story or create this piece of content? Uh, have we found the tension to, to really identify why our audience and not just us should care about this? And then, you know, do we have that human connection? Have we found opportunities to bring in more faces and voices? And so you may not always be able to do all of those things, but doing one or two or three of those things will give you baby steps, get incrementally closer uh, to creating content that's going to resonate with your audience in a much deeper way. Do you have that article? Or do you have a, is it still up? Can we post or link to it in the show notes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the piece, it's also SEO optimized. So if you were to search for Netflix, New York Times paid posts, it should be the very we'll first it. thing that comes up. Excellent. We'll um, test your theory so, on that. There you go. So it's there. But yeah, we'll send you that link. We'll make sure it's in the show notes for anyone. Yeah. Awesome. I, well, I just want to mention one thing here because this was another thing that I noted when you uh, spoke because I loved this. Very simple with the human connection, focusing on creating content that starts conversations and touches hearts. And I think mm -hmm. if you can kind of keep that in the forefront, whether you're doing a massive piece like this with a big budget or something small, if just if it starts a conversation and touches hearts. And I think that these things are, I mean, that's really what that, that's really what that difference is. You know, that um, by doing these things, by making this checklist, by looking for opportunities to, you know, bring in the sources or find the tension or or bring in the faces and voices, that's the difference between the content that is going to start a conversation that is going to resonate with people uh, and the content that may just get, you know, archived, ignored, swiped past or whatever else. So I think your idea of a product release, the first product release in February would work then because then you could correspond it with Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs>
I would touch hearts. There, oh, there, there just might be a way to make that work. But I don't think the <laughs> February uh, existence is enough of a differentiator. I think I think you got to find. I think we got some. Yeah, yeah. got to take some work okay, on that one. Okay, I'm trying here. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> now, if you're a small organization or if you are a one-person marketing team, can you do this kind of thing with limited time and budget? And if so, yeah. what tips do you have? Absolutely. So um, I think the best and most approachable way to do this is really to use the truth acronym, like we said, as a checklist. And so, you know, my recommendation, my my workspace is a, is a place full of posters and stickies and all kinds of things. So um, hopefully that doesn't offend anyone. But I would say, just like we said with your avatars, you know, take this list and put it somewhere where you're going to be able to check it. Um, and anytime you're creating something where you know it's important, that your audience understands it, that it resonates with them, that it makes an impact to just use it as a checklist. Could I do one or more of these five things a little bit better? Could I find one more source? Could I bring in one more face? Uh, could I think a little bit more about the tension and why they should care about these things? Um, it's just taking that pause of just a minute or two to ask that question um, and see what can be done. Now, like I said, you know, everything we do isn't uh, isn't going to be the most amazing, biggest budget, noble thing we've ever created. So uh, don't try to, to boil the ocean in one day, but just taking pause and asking those questions before you, you put something live or before you agree to create something big, um, you know, it's going to help you get closer to your goals ultimately. So I think it's worth that one minute pause to just ask some of those questions and see if there's an opportunity to, to take one of those best practices just a little bit further before you set something live. Mm-hmm. So I think with content, it obviously takes a lot of time, uh, a lot of resources and a lot of investment and sometimes doesn't always have the most immediate ROI. Yes. So how do you kind of get over the hurdle of getting your stakeholders to invest in uh, either having a content team or providing those resources sure. or to even step into the content game? Yeah, I think this this is a really big challenge for a lot of people. And again, especially if you're sort of like a lone content ranger inside of a bigger mm -hmm. organization, uh, then you're almost certainly having this ROI conversation regularly and it doesn't always go the way you want it to. Um, I think much like in the early days of social media, when people will say, well, what's the ROI of us having a Twitter account? No one would ask that question now, right? We can clearly see that now, but for a lot of people who haven't ventured into the content space, what's the ROI of having a blog is a perfectly valid question. Uh, we just haven't found ways to kind of articulate it yet. So um, my, my encouragement is if you're in that position, you're trying to make this case, you're struggling to get buy-in is two things. One, I would encourage you to manage expectations that this is like communications, like public relations, uh, and like some of our marketing efforts and branding efforts, it is a long, a long tail. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a, a long game that we're playing here. We're not going to launch a blog and publish one piece and suddenly, you know, triple our revenue overnight. And so being honest about that, you know, and, and acknowledging that I think is one way to help earn the trust of those folks and, and manage their expectations and, and hopefully give you some freedom to experiment without the expectation of immediate results. The second thing I would do is look for testimonials or case studies. Um, and the reason you do that is because most businesses, most leaders understand the value of those two things. And those are two things that often can be beefed up with more storytelling very easily uh, because they're often done in a minimal way. So maybe a test, you, may, you might have testimonials or customer stories or client case studies somewhere on your website 
Um, but they probably don't have any amount of storytelling. And so if you can frame this as I want to do an in-depth testimonial, right? Mm -hmm. And what that really is, is you're going to go profile this, um, you know, do a feature, a whole piece on this particular customer who's had transformative results. Uh, That is a little bit more tightly tied to ROI and, you know, into sales and revenue in the mind of, of senior leaders. And so that's often sort of your, um, your Trojan horse into sneaking more storytelling into, you know, the content that you're creating, starting with case studies and testimonials is often the, the easiest place to get buy-in and say, I want to update them. I want to refresh them. I want to add more detail to them. Uh, and by experimenting with more storytelling in those places and seeing how well that works, uh, it's often an easy way to to get additional buy-in down the line for other types of, of more in-depth storytelling. Well, Melanie, we thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. And we've got our final three questions. Before we let you go, we're going to jump right into them. Number one, who or what inspires you? I think I have been throughout my life most inspired by the teachers that I've had in my life. Um, I think that I feel really blessed to have had teachers who encouraged me to pursue storytelling, pursue writing. Um, and I, and I aim to have that kind of influence in on others. So, uh, teachers, I think as a whole. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think too, when, you know, when, when we learn things at AMA, I love to take what I've learned at my lunch presentations and share them with my team and the people that I work with as well. I mean, it's very empowering to be able to share that knowledge. Did you always know you wanted to kind of go into the writing and journalistic space? Like, wh- when did that start? You know, I I don't think I knew the form that it would take, but mm-hmm. I think people around me knew. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned to you guys earlier that I actually just this week submitted the manuscript for my first book. So that's know, really exciting. Congratulations. Yay. And in the process of doing that, um, my mom reminded me that one of my hobbies when I was a child um, an, an incredibly on-brand move is I would say, I'm, I can't, I have to write a book and I would fold paper and I would, you know, put stickers and I would write, and it made no sense. I mean, it was just total, um, you know, gobbledygook, but, uh, you know, that was my hobby was I'm going to write a book and I would just fold paper and kind of, you know, put things in there. So, uh, apparently this has been a long time in the making, but I think, I think I had to learn that, that storytelling and, and writing was a viable career option. Uh, almost by accident to really end up here full time. Sure. And I bet you, your mom still has those books, doesn't she? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. They're, yeah. they're definitely, they're in the attic. There's, there's a box of embarrassing, uh, you know, sticker, sticker books somewhere. Yeah. So when your, when your book comes out, well, that'll be matched with the, the younger Melanie yeah. uh, novels. Yes. This is, a, this is a good marketing plan. I'm going to have to go home and go sorting through the attic to, uh, to do throwback photos of, of, of my, my original books, you know? Yeah. I love it. What is your favorite personal, speaking of books, favorite personal development, business, or marketing related book? I absolutely love the book Everybody Writes by Anne Handley. Oh, such a good book. Yeah. It is such a good book. Um, Everybody Writes by Anne Handley. Um, the, the title tells you exactly what it's about, which is that you, so many people think that they are not writers. They don't identify themselves in that way, but we all write. We all can write. We do it every day in every way. And the book is equal parts educational and inspirational. Uh, and Anne is a wonderful human and her voice uh, transcends through the book. Mm-hmm. You can like hear her. Her personality shines through. And so I absolutely love that book. That's, that's a book that I keep extra copies on hand to, to gift to people for sure. Yeah, we love Anne. Uh, she's just phenomenal. But that I would agree. That's the one book that I have on my shelf that I still like reference. Like I keep going back to it. It's just really great content. 
It's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Well, it is an Anne on our wish list uh, to get on the Marketers in Motion podcast. Yeah, Anne, if you're listening. <laughs> We're going to get her. We're going to get her. All right. Last question. If you could boil down what you've learned in your career to one piece of advice for others, what would that be? This is not my original quote, so I will take exactly zero units of credit for this. Um, but I think it best encapsulates what it is that I that I do and I try to share, which is that it is always better to show than to tell. And so I think this is sort of a, a journalism axiom they teach you early on. You know, anytime you have an instance where you can tell someone something and you have the opportunity to instead show them, whether that's through an experience, whether it's through quotes, whether it's through, you know, giving them visuals, to always take it that step further and show them instead of telling them is going to be so much more compelling. It's going to make your case so much stronger. And it's going to make your connection with that person that you're having some sort of exchange with, you know, so much richer. And so I don't care if you're trying to convince your your kid to eat their vegetables or you're trying to like make a negotiation for a promotion at work showing instead of telling why something should happen is is almost always the key. And do you have any of your favorites uh, from brands, anything that's like kind of stuck out to you maybe in the last year or so that you're like, this is just an awesome example of this year or so or you can go back farther super recent one but there is one that i love to go back to time and again um there is a company called blue bottle coffee Mm -hmm. so back to coffee coffee. you can tell i I have a serious problem (laughs) um but uh blue bottle coffee is excellent when it comes to this kind of marketing stuff so uh they have produced a beautiful coffee table book that, you know, I mean, coffee table. So mm-hmm. there's a connection there, um, but really beautiful photography of every part of the coffee process, which I think is is a really smart way to kind of show what goes into the, the art and the craftsmanship of what they do. Mm-hmm. But they've also produced a course, a full course on Skillshare, where you could learn the same things their baristas learn to oh. become a skilled coffee connoisseur. Um, they've done a coloring book for children so that kids can, we could start that habit nice and early, get them to appreciate, <laughs> you know, what it is that we're going to the cafe for every day. Um, so I think that they are really smart about exploring different formats and, and finding really creative ways uh, to connect with their audience. Picking up the coloring book, writing <laughs> it down. I don't think you told us how you brew your coffee. Uh, I currently use a Keurig. Oh. Um, and the reason for that is is primarily I live in a small apartment and I am the only coffee drinker in my household. And so um, I, I disliked the waste of brewing like a big pot or, you know, doing the whole French press. And I could never get the balance right for a single cup. Um, so I use a Keurig and I have one of those little like metal mesh baskets that you can put a spoonful mm-hmm. of coffee in. Oh, so yeah. I'm it's reusable. Using- yeah. 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 So I'm not producing uh, boat sure, using the pods, tiny yeah. plastic cups, which would make me feel equally wasteful. Um, but yeah, that's that's my current my current MO. <laughs> OK, one more coffee question. Have you ever tried the little Nespresso pods? I have. I have tried the Nespresso pods. I think um, I don't mind them. I, I have had them at, you know, like in cafes or co-working spaces or, you know, when I'm at someone's office. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've tried those before. They definitely make me feel fancier than the than the Keurig cup. Yeah, they're they're tasty, but they're expensive. And yeah. uh, one of my favorite things to do is to go into the kitchen shops and pretend that I've never seen them. Like, oh, what's this? And they're like, would you like a sample? And I say, sure. Yeah, <laughs> There's no shame in that. So we can have Melanie back on later for a whole coffee podcast. Yes. I feel like there's, yeah, yeah let's can, do it. Oh. I actually 
when I was in uh, when I was in college, I wrote for a college newspaper, um, and potentially my only abuse of power in my time there as an editor is I granted myself a weekly column about coffee, oh. uh, so, so I could allow myself to to try things and share the experiences and, and go on coffee adventures. I love it. That'll be our behind the scenes of the Marketers in Motion podcast. We'll we'll talk about coffee with with Melanie. There you go. That is great. All right. Now, before Melanie, you give uh, any of your contact info and and details, do want to just give a quick shout out here to Hungerford Technologies for setting us up with the uh, conference room today, letting us use their WebEx gear. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Kim is one of our AMA members. I think Josh is uh, part of Hungerford. He's on our board. Mm -hmm. And Greg bails me out at work because we work through Hungerford and they do all of our, we've got WebEx at, at work and uh, WebEx teams and a bunch of tools that he helps me with. And he's he's techie and nerdy like the audio stuff like I am. So we're very thankful to uh, Hungerford for hosting this. Uh, Melanie, give us the, where are you online? How can people reach you? How can they follow you, tweet you, all that good stuff? <laughs> the good news is that there is only one of me. So if you look for Melanie Diesel, D-E-Z-I-E-L, you will find me almost any platform you look. Uh, our company and our website is storyfuel.co. So story, F-U-E-L dot C-O. Um, that's where you can learn more about the workshops that we do, the keynotes that we do for events. Um, there's some free resources that you'll find there. Uh, there's a blog that probably needs just a little bit more love than what it's been given at the moment. Just managing your expectations, you know, as promised. Yeah, that's good. Uh, but you can also find my contact information there. You'll find all the social links. So storyfuel.co, that CO is probably the easiest place to go to find all of the other things. And you will also find there uh, storyfuel.co slash book launch. There's a tab that says book. You can find it there. If you do want to learn more about that exciting new book that's coming out in March 2020, uh, it's actually going to be all about a framework that you can use for coming up with almost infinite content ideas. So if one of the challenges you have is, okay, I'm on board, I'm ready to make some content, and I got nothing, I don't know (laughs) what we're going to say, then this book is probably going to be super helpful for you. Uh, in the spirit of, you know, teaching, teaching you all to fish, uh, this will give you a framework for having the most productive brainstorms you possibly can. March 2020. We'll, we'll link that information too, but that's so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, it we'll, is. We'll... It's exciting. I can't wait. It's my first one, you know, other than the, the stickers from back yeah. in the day, stickers and pants. Right. Know? And you said, <laughs> you were saying earlier, you submitted the manuscript yesterday, right? So it's Literally like... yesterday. Today has been a big relief. Yeah. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> I have spent the better part of the last few months working on it every single day. Oh man. Yeah. Well, we'll put show, we'll put uh, all the details in the show notes, links in there. And uh, also exciting things. There's another family member on the way soon. There is. So, you know, I, I, I discovered that I was expecting uh, earlier this year, of course, we have a, a little one on the way, hopefully sometime this month in August. Yay. And um, decided, of course, as you do when you have a baby on the way, that now is the time to write a book. Of course. So, uh, you know, it has been a, a busy few months, but I'm, I'm very relieved that we managed to get that sent off before she decided to make her debut because that would have been problematic. I did have more than one nightmare about going oh, into no. labor and having my laptop with me and having to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> if you wait, there is never a perfect time. You just need to do you it. Know? Yes. Well, but I'm, I'm glad that she did wait, at least until the, the book was done. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you on that as well. We've got a, a little you. storyteller coming. Yes. Yes. That's good. <laughs> Melanie Diesel, Story Fuel, thank you so much for your time today. We do appreciate it. 
Thanks for letting me share my story. Of course. Thank you so much. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.